happiness and religion, that is our topic for today. Pope Francis, then Cardinal Jorge Maria Bergoglio, in his notes addressed to his fellow cardinals, during the congregations of cardinals preceding the 2013 conclave, named what he regards to be the most pressing margins of human existence to which the Catholic Church is called to evangelize. The margins of the mystery of sin, of pain, of injustice, of ignorance, and of doing without religion. Arguably, doing without religion is an increasingly widespread mode of living in the secular societies of the Western Hemisphere. For very good reasons, Pope Francis identifies this pervasive mode of living as one of the margins of human existence, for it is neither neutral nor benign. Rather, doing without religion constitutes a significant impediment to attaining the surpassing final end to which humanity is ordained in the extant order of providence, to perfect and everlasting happiness in union with God. The Catechism of the Catholic Church renders this surpassing final end in its programmatic opening statement thus, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created the human being to make him share in his own blessed life. Thomas Aquinas advances an account of the virtue of religion that is theologically profound, philosophically robust, and especially relevant for a context in which doing without religion has become a widespread phenomenon. Aquinas takes the virtue of religion to be indispensable for attaining the surpassing final end to which divine providence has ordained humanity. Indeed, genuine and everlasting beatitude in communion with God. To put Aquinas' central insight in a nutshell, the gratuitous ultimate end of perfect and everlasting participation in the divine life, the beatific vision, is unattainable without the wayfarer practicing the virtue of religion. This vital virtue signifies the stable disposition formed by charity to submit one's will to God in the interior act of devotion, to direct one's intellect completely to God in the interior act of prayer, and to render one's due honor and reverence to God in exterior acts of adoration, of sacrifice, oblation, tithes, and vows. But why should doing without religion constitute one of the margins of the human existence in the first place? For the educated elites of the Western Hemisphere, doing without religion is the welcome effect of an ineluctable progress from ignorance and bigotry to enlightenment and tolerance. For them, doing without religion does not constitute at all one of the margins of human existence, but, quite on the contrary, the precondition for the ultimate flourishing 
of the human being, conceived of now as the sovereign self. In order to answer this objection in a theologically sound way, two tasks must be accomplished. First, the recovery of the word of religion that for at least two generations has suffered unjust neglect from philosophers and theologians, and second, the recovery of the theological reason why the virtue of religion is indispensable for attaining the surpassing ultimate end, perfect and everlasting happiness in union with God. Yet first, one preliminary question must be answered. What essentially is the virtue of religion? Thomas Aquinas is the first Catholic theologian in the Latin West to compose a comprehensive and indeed complete treatise on the virtue of religion. In this treatise, in the, in the second part of the second part of his Summa Theologiae, the Secunda Secunde, in questions 80 through 100, he develops an original and unitary conception of what he regards as the most eminent of the moral virtues, religio. Drawing upon Cicero, Isidore of Seville, and especially Augustine, he conceives of religio as a specific moral excellence that comprises a set of operations characteristic of the human being as a rational creature. It denotes both interior and exterior operations, interior acts of devotion and prayer and exterior acts of adoration, sacrifice, oblation, etc. By way of which the human being renders what is due to the source of all being and life, to the first principle of creation and government of things. These acts denote a human excellence in relationship to a common object. A stable disposition hard to lose, that is a habitus, enables and facilitates these specific acts. Religio thus constitutes a distinct virtue that denotes properly a relation to God. By the proper and immediate acts that the habitus of religio elicits, the human being is directed to God alone. This virtue is akin to the cardinal virtue of justice, which Aquinas defines as rendering to everybody his or her due by a constant and perpetual will. Justice, however, is the virtue of the actions among equals. This is the reason why constitutively asymmetrical relationships, children to parents, citizens to their homeland, and first and foremost, rational creatures to their creator, cannot belong directly to the virtue of justice. For the constitutive inequality characteristic of these relationships makes it impossible to render what is properly due. Consequently, acts of moral excellence that pertain to these essentially asymmetrical relationships must belong to virtues different from justice in the strict sense. But insofar as some do is rendered, they must nevertheless still be related to justice. Hence, religio cannot be one of the species into which the cardinal virtue of justice may be divided. Rather, religio is a potential part of justice. 
It is a virtue which resembles a cardinal virtue without manifesting its complete, specific nature. In this way, the virtue of religion occupies a position similar to piety, pietas, and observance, observantia. Piety and observance facilitate those acts of rightly acknowledging what is due and what cannot be rendered according to the order of justice in the constitutively unequal relationships all human beings have to their parents and to their homeland. A fortiori, no rational creature is able to render what is justly due to God. The virtue of religion is the operative habitus that enables human beings to exercise the greatest approximation to justice possible in the most asymmetrical relationship of all, the rational creature to the first principle of the creation and government of all things. The virtue of religion presupposes some, indeed, rudimentary universal knowledge of God's existence and providence, and is rooted in the third inclination of the natural law, the inclination to good according to the nature of human reason. That is the inclination to know the truth about God and live in society. Aquinas states that whatever pertains to this inclination belongs to the natural law. Hence the principles of the natural law govern and guide the acquired virtue of religion. It is this mostly tacit and implicit knowledge of God and its rootedness in the natural law that account for the integrity of the formal cause of the acquired virtue of religion, the ordination of reason and of its ratio, the judgment and command of reason to exercise acts of religion. The material cause, everything taken up or chosen as offering in order to signify the honor that is due to God, may be more or less deficient due to the state of wounded nature in which humanity finds itself after the fall. Importantly, the de facto deficiency of its material cause does not compromise the formal integrity of religion as a moral virtue. It is precisely this constitutive formal integrity that affords the definition of the virtue in the first place. Aquinas states, quote, from Secunda Secunda 81, Article 2, a virtue is that which makes its possessor good and his act good likewise. Wherefore, we must need say that every good act belongs to a virtue. Now it is evident that to render anyone his due has the aspect of good, since by rendering a person his due, one becomes suitably proportioned to him through being ordered to him in a becoming manner. But order comes under the aspect of good. Since then it belongs to religion to pay due honor to someone, namely to God, it is evident that religion is a virtue." Unquote. The formality of the object of all the moral virtues, including religio, and the formal integrity of their respective acts, accounts for the teleological perfectibility of human nature regarding the good of moral excellence. Since grace now does not destroy, but rather presupposes and perfects human nature, 
It is divine grace that in the extant order of providence accounts for the surpassing perfection of the virtue and the agent. This perfection comes about by way of the healing and elevation of human nature by sanctifying grace and by the infusion of the theological virtues, especially charity, together with the infusion of the collective moral virtues, especially religio. We, call, we talk then about the infused virtue of religio. While the material cause of the acquired virtue of religion is deficient due to wounded human nature, the material cause of the infused virtue of religion is freed of this deficiency. Now human nature is healed and elevated by divine grace and furthermore perfected by divine and human instruction, specifically the intellect, of course, here. According to Aquinas, the new law of the gospel and human law, that is Christ's mandates, and the additional determinations of the church establish what specific things are to be done in reference to God. Furthermore, and more importantly, the acts of the infused virtue of religion are commanded by the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, and formed by the virtue of charity, which already unites the person in some fashion with God, by a union of the spirit, as Thomas says. Furthermore, in order to make the human soul amenable to the motions of the Holy Spirit, the human being receives, together with the theological virtue of charity, also the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They are infused habitus of their own. The Apostle Paul states in Romans 8.15, you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And Thomas concludes from that, that precisely because it is the Holy Spirit who moves to this effect, to have such filial affection toward God that makes us cry, Abba, Father, Aquinas argues there must be a corresponding gift of the Holy Spirit, a stable disposition that facilitates and elicits such acts. And Aquinas says, quote, since it belongs properly to piety to pay duty and worship to one's father, it follows that piety whereby at the Holy Spirit's instigation we pay worship and duty to God as our father is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Secunda Secunde 121, Article 1. The gift of piety perfects the infused virtue of religion, while the latter, religio, elicits acts of worship to God the Creator, the former, piety, elicits worship to God the Father. Recall that the person receives the infused virtue of religion and the gift of piety by way of the infusion of sanctifying grace. Yet sanctifying grace itself is received in virtue of an instrumental cause that imprints a seal or character on the soul that efficaciously capacitates the graced person to the worship of the triune God. This very seal or character that the rational soul receives is the effect of the sacraments, first and foremost of baptism. Because of the seal of baptism and the gift of piety, the cultus, of religio is now worship of the Father through the Son 
in the Holy Spirit. Unsurprisingly, but nevertheless significantly, Aquinas regards the virtue of religion to be the chief among the moral virtues. The virtue of religion acquires its surpassing preeminence among the moral virtues from its relationship to the ultimate end to which the agent is ordered, God. The closer something is to this end, the greater is its goodness. Since the virtue of religion, whose acts are directly ordered to the honor of God, approaches nearer to God than any other moral virtue, this virtue holds a position of preeminence among all the moral virtues. This brief account and definition of the virtue of religion shall suffice. We are now in a position to turn to the two interconnected tasks. The first task is to show that and why, according to Aquinas, the virtue of religion is indispensable for the attainment of one subjective final end, beatitude. The second task that remains is to make simply explicit what is entailed in having accomplished the first, namely that in the Thomistic framework, the virtue of religion is absolutely central for genuine human flourishing. Recall that according to Aquinas, the happiness of the human being is twofold. First, the genuine but transitory and therefore imperfect happiness that corresponds to the finality proportionate to human nature. The human being has the natural potency to obtain this happiness and so can obtain it. Second, the everlasting unitive and therefore perfect beatitude that surpasses the capacity of human nature and can be obtained by the power of God alone, by a kind of participation of the Godhead, about which is written, as Thomas says, 2 Peter 1.4, that by Christ we are made partakers of the divine nature. The perfect beatitude of the human being is the subjective fruition of the objective ultimate end by way of an unmediated direct union of the intellect and the will with God, who is the first cause of the rational soul's creation and enlightenment, but who also is the rational soul's final end, as the soul's universal good. And since the rational soul is the substantial form of the body, it is the whole human being, soul and body, whose ultimate end in the extant order of divine providence, gratuitously decreed from all eternity as merited by Christ, is to become a partaker of the divine nature, and thus a partaker of the unfathomable bliss of the divine life. Significantly, there obtains an essential requirement for the attainment of this everlasting perfect beatitude. In order to illustrate this requirement, Aquinas adduces a central principle of the philosophy of nature and puts it to analogical use in his theological argument of fittingness, convenientia. It is this principle. Matter cannot receive a form unless it, that is matter, be duly disposed thereto. Matter cannot receive a form unless it be duly disposed thereto. Material cannot be shaped unless it is duly prepared. Wood must be cut and dried in order to receive the form of fire. Iron must be heated in order to receive the form of a plow. Similarly, 
Nothing achieves its end unless it is well adapted to that end. And therefore no one can attain perfect beatitude without a right good will. No one can attain perfect beatitude without a right good will. The rectitude of the will is, of course, necessarily a concomitant condition, a concomitant condition of attaining perfect happiness. That is quite obvious. Um, one cannot be in the beatific vision without a right good will. Thomas explains happiness or bliss by which the human being is made most perfectly conformed to God and which is the end of the human life consists in an operation. And this operation that realizes the perfect conformity to God entails necessarily the concomitant rectitude of the will. But the rectitude of the will, the will properly set to onto the ultimate end, is also a condition antecedent to attaining perfect beatitude. Why so? Could God not conceivably have created a rational creature in the original state that in the original state is endowed with a will rightly ordered to the ultimate end, and that in the next instance, after its creation, would be elevated by God to the attainment of the ultimate end and to perfect and everlasting beatitude in the beatific vision. Because any answer to this question refers necessarily to the mystery of the divine wisdom and will, Aquinas advances an argument of conveniencia, fittingness. It is worth quoting it at length here to understand his argument. The order of divine wisdom demands that it should not be thus, what I just proposed. For as is stated in De Celo 2.12, of those things that have a natural capacity for the perfect good, one has it without movement, some by one movement, some by several movements. Now to possess the perfect good without movement belongs to that which has it naturally. And to have happiness naturally belongs to God alone. Therefore it belongs to God alone not to be moved towards happiness by any previous operation. Now since happiness surpasses every created nature, no pure creature can fittingly gain happiness without the movement or operation whereby it tends thereto. But the angel who is above the human being in the natural order obtained it according to the order of divine wisdom by one movement of a meritorious work. Whereas the human being obtains it by many movements of works which are called merits. Wherefore, according to the philosopher, like Michel Ethics 1.9, happiness is the reward of works of virtue. Unquote. This is Prima Secunde, question 5, article 7, the treatise on Beatitude. The reception of the gratuitous gift of perfect and eternal Beatitude requires, according to Thomas's argument here, antecedent movements or operations by the embodied rational creature. And such movements initiated by grace, ordered by the restored rectitude of the will to God, and united inchoatively with God by way of the theological virtue of charity, 
merit, these movements merit the attainment of everlasting perfect beatitude. Now remember, merit denotes the essential cooperation of rational creatures with divine grace in attaining the ultimate end and their perfect beatitude. Aquinas takes Augustine's universally accepted axiom, God created us without us, but he did not will to save us without us, to be the guiding theological principle that accounts for the proper preparation of the rational creature for eternal union with God. The proper preparations of the created image, the human being, to receive an essentially disproportionate surpassing realization of its perfection, conformity to and union with the exemplar, are acts chosen and executed by a right good will. But the goodness of the will depends on the intention of the end. The last end of the human will is the sovereign good, God. Hence, for the will to be good, the will has to be properly set on the ultimate end, God, the sovereign good. The sovereign good, God's own infinite goodness, relates to the divine will as its proper object. In other words, God always and in all wills his own goodness, and God wills things apart from himself by willing his own goodness, the sovereign good. Hence, God wills also our will to be ordered to the sovereign good. And so for the rectitude of the human will to obtain, the human will must be properly conformed to the divine will. Consequently, the rectitude of the human will, the intellectual appetite, depends on the intellect being instructed by the natural and the divine law, and on the will being thus ordered by right reason and the acquired moral virtues to a due end. And by sanctifying grace, the theological virtues, the infused moral virtues, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the gratuitous ultimate end and to the means that allow us to reach this end. Okay, now to the connection of the rectitude of the will and the virtue of religion. The rectitude of the will finds its proper realization in virtues that are about operations. The paradigm is the virtue of justice, which applies the will to its proper act, thereby realizing its rectitude in actu. Wherefore, Aquinas concludes all such virtues as are about operations bear in some way the character of justice. As we already learned, the virtue of religion resembles the virtue of justice, for it is also about operations. But it is not an integral part of justice, but rather annexed to it because its operations fall short of justice due to the impossibility to render what is exactly due in the relationship of the rational creature to the creator. Precisely because the virtue of religion belongs to a family of related virtues whose head is the virtue of justice, the virtue that applies the will to its proper act and thereby actualizes the will's rectitude, it would be a grave error to mistake the virtue of religion for some supererogatory moral excellence that is up to one's personal discretion. Aquinas emphasizes that, quote, it belongs to the dictate of natural reason 
that the human being should do something through reference for God, but that the human being should do this or that determinate thing does not belong to the dictate of natural reason, but is established by divine or human law. Secunda Secundi 81. Natural reason dictates the very ratio of the virtue of religion, namely that reference to God is due, and, that, and this due is so necessary that without it moral rectitude cannot be ensured. Without the acts of the virtue of religion, moral rectitude cannot be ensured. And if moral rectitude is deficient, the integrity and unity of the cardinal virtues is compromised, if not lost. Among the acquired moral virtues, one should add the virtue of religion indeed has a unique deficiency that needs to be not forgotten. For in regard to this unique acquired virtue, it matters significantly that human beings in the state of wounded nature are unable to exercise the natural love of God above all things. Hence, while far from being a mere semblance or counterfeit of virtue, the acquired virtue of religion is nevertheless a uniquely imperfect virtue. Like all the other acquired virtues, it is imperfect in respect to the supernatural ultimate end. But unlike all the other acquired moral virtues, the virtue of religion is also imperfect in respect to the proper realization of the cultus of God as the first principle of the creation and government of things. Recall, cultus results from the formal and the material cause of the acts of religio. Here Aquinas is Aristotelian, but in an Augustinian way. The formal cause, reason's ordination to God, and the efficient cause, the ratio of this ordination, accounts for the constitutive integrity, the proximate perfection characteristic of an acquired operative habitus. But its material cause, everything taken up or chosen as offering in order to signify the honor that is due to God, remains de facto deficient. For the proper perfection of the material cause presupposes the capacity to exercise the natural love of God above all things qua final end. Only if human beings were able in the state of wounded nature to exercise this natural love of God above all things would the virtues proper ratio, the judgment and command of reason be matched consistently and stably by an equivalent volition of God as ultimate good. Hence, despite its formal integrity qua specifying object and despite its proper ratio, the cultus of the acquired virtue of religion remains de facto deficient. However, due to its formal integrity, the acquired virtue of religion is able to ensure moral rectitude and consequently also the unity of the acquired moral virtues. While not at all a counterfeit of virtue, the acquired virtue of religion, due to its material imperfection, nevertheless produces necessarily a deficient cultus. The material imperfection that causes the deficient cultus is overcome only through the restoration of the capacity 
of the natural love of God above all things. Yet as already stated above, this restoration comes about only by healing grace and the infusion of faith, hope, and charity. And there's more. The person who receives together with faith, hope, and charity and all the other infused moral virtues, also the infused virtue of religion, receives in addition an imprinted seal or character on the soul that efficaciously capacitates him or her to the worship of the triune God. As mentioned already earlier, this very seal or character that the soul receives is the effect of the sacraments, first and foremost, of baptism. The sacrament of the new law, all the sacraments of the new law, are ordained for a twofold purpose, namely for a remedy against sins, Aquinas states, and for the perfecting of the soul in things pertaining to the divine worship according to the right of the Christian life. Tertia Paris, question 63, article 1. The new law and its correlative human law, that is Christ's commands and the additional determinations of the church, establish what determinate things are to be done in reference to God. And thanks to the gift of piety, the range of what is to be done for the sake of reference to God, now worshipped as Father, is remarkably expansive. Thomas states in Secunda Secunde 121, Article 1, response to the third objection. By the gift of piety, a human being pays worship and duty not only to God, but also to all human beings on account of their relationship to God. Hence it belongs to piety to honor the saints and not to contradict the scriptures, whether one understands them or not. Consequently, piety also assists those who are in a state of unhappiness, unquote. The gift of piety and the theological virtue of charity display a similar structure. In each, the unique relationship with God. In the case of piety, worship of God as Father. In the case of charity, friendship with God includes those to whom God's fatherhood and friendship extend. The theological virtues have God as their direct object. Faith and hope are directly engaged by God as their immediate object, and the theological virtue of charity already realizes a certain union with God, the perfect ultimate end. Higher virtues, like faith, hope, and charity, can command the acts of lower virtues. The acts of the infused, perfect virtue of religion commanded by faith, hope, and charity are not in reference directly to God, like believing God, hoping in God, loving God with God's own shared love of charity, but rather are about things referred to the ultimate end. They are acts issued by faith, hope, and charity and are done out of due reference for God. They obtains a unique relationship between the theological virtue of charity and the infused moral virtue of religion. By way of charity, the Christian adheres to God by a union of the spirit. For this reason, charity is the form of all the infused moral virtues, first and foremost, the virtue of religion. 
But the relationship between charity and the infused word of religion goes even deeper, Aquinas states. It belongs immediately to charity that the human being should give himself to God, adhering to God by a union of the spirit. But it belongs immediately to religion and through the medium of religion, to charity, which is the principle of religion, that the human being should give himself to God for certain works of divine worship. Divini cultus. Secunda Secunde 82, Article 2. The person who adheres to God by a union of the spirit receives a supernatural principle or cause that issues in the infused virtue of religion and orders that person immediately to acts of divine worship. In short, it is impossible for a person who adheres to God by a union of the spirit not to practice the virtue of religion. These works of divine worship arise from two principal interior operations characteristic of the infused virtue of religion. Devotion, devotio, is the first and is a special act of the will, namely to devote oneself to God so as to subject oneself wholly to God. Devotion applies the will to its proper act, namely to refer all the other moral virtues to the service of God, who is the ultimate end. Devotion, the principal operation of the infused virtue of religion, that is, of actualizing the will's rectitude regarding what is due to God, ensures that the service of God constitutes the end or purpose of all the other acts of religion, and indeed of all the other infused moral virtues. The second principal operation of the infused virtue of religion is prayer, the surrendering of one's mind to God by presenting the mind to God and asking becoming things of God, as Thomas puts it, by presenting the mind to God and asking becoming things of God. Devotion and prayer are the interior constitutive acts of the infused virtue of religion. And among the two, devotion holds the position of primacy. Exterior acts of adoration, sacrifice, oblation, vows, tithes, and others become proper acts of the infused virtue of religion only by way of their, in, of their mediation through the interior acts of devotion and prayer. Infused virtue of religion is analogous to the theological virtue of charity in that similar to the way charity unites all the other infused virtues with the ultimate end by being their form and commands acts of all other virtues, the infused virtue of religion unites all the other infused moral virtues by submitting their acts to the interior worship of God. Let us conclude. It is nothing but the virtue of religion that actualizes the will's rectitude through acts of honor and reverence due to God. Minimally, doing without religion is a failure to do justice to the most fundamental and most essential relationship, that of the rational creature to the creator. Precisely because it belongs to the dictate of natural reason that the human being should do something through reference to God, 
doing without religion is a mode of existence contrary to the dictate of natural reason. And because the dictate of natural reason is always according to nature, doing without religion is against human nature and therefore constitutes a unique margin of human existence. For a baptized and confirmed Christian, doing without religion is something contrary to God's grace, that in view of the supernatural ultimate end of eternal unity of beatitude constitutes a perilous placement at the periphery of human existence. In the famous opening lines of his divine comedy, Dante describes his own errancy to the periphery of human existence thus, Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura, che la diritta via era smarita. Midway in the journey of our life I found myself in a dark wood, for the straight way was lost. This describes well the objective situation of all those doing without religion. Midway upon the journey of their lives, having wandered from the straight and true and thus finding themselves lost in a dark and hard wood of indifference, irreverence and irreligion, all of these persons, whether Christian or not, still desire happiness. They seek the universal good to which their will is directed by necessity. But with the rectitude of the will compromised or even corrupted, they will not find what they crave, even in fame, wealth, pleasure, power, a long life, and the accumulation of things. Because all of these are at best only aspects of the universal good. The persons possessing them still desire the universal good in total. Short of attaining it, they will ultimately fail in their quest of finding perfect and everlasting beatitude. Insofar as the theological virtue of charity brings about an inchoative participation in the final attainment of everlasting beatitude, that is the beatific vision, the partaking in the blessed life of the Trinity, already the Christian life, here and now, even in the midst of profound suffering, is one of inchoative joy, a joy that arises from the inchoative union with God in charity. That is why the deep joy of the saints attracts almost irresistibly. Hence, persons lost in the dark and hard wood of indifference, irreverence, and irreligion are best encountered with a joy that is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Encountering such joy might serve as the first impulse of desiring the happiness that blossoms in the existential center of faith, the life of charity, the inchoative friendship with God, the very beginning of eternal beatitude. Such joy might draw us away from the margin where both religion is eschewed and ignorance abounds, and may elicit a desire to become wayfarers ourselves, wayfarers on the journey to our true ultimate end, eternal beatitude in unitive vision the Blessed Trinity. And being a wayfarer, which is after all the, uni the universal ordination of all human beings in the extant order of divine providence, being a wayfarer has one characteristic, indeed one indispensable feature. 
a ready submission of the will and intellect to God. From these two interior acts, devotion and prayer, flow all the other interior and exterior acts of the worldly of religion. Thus, joyfully and devoutly, the wayfarer echoes the psalmist, who in Psalm 119 encapsulates the very heart of the worldly of religion. I incline my heart to perform thy statutes forever to the end. I thank you for your attention.